I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 to 15 this morning. We're going to read verses 1 to 15. We're going to focus on 1 through 13, but I want to read 14 and 15 just to give you a sense of where we're going. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 15. As you're turning there, I'll remind you, if you, some of you may know, some of you may not know, I'll remind you that today is the eight-year anniversary of Midtown Baptist Church. We're eight years old today. Amen. Somebody asked me recently, uh, what's the whole story of Midtown Baptist? You should write that story down. And I said, I will. As soon as I get some free time, I'll write that down. Uh, but they asked me, what's the history of our church? That's a good question. Uh, a full answer to that question is probably pretty long. And let me give you the short answer this morning that I hope would encourage you. The history of our church is that God is faithful. God is faithful to us. At every point of need in the last eight years, God has provided, and He often did so before we even knew what we needed. That's been our testimony, that the Lord is faithful. And so based on that history, brothers and sisters, I want to tell you this morning that I am hopeful. I am hopeful for our church going forward. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful because God doesn't change. The God that He has been is the God that He will be, and He's been faithful to us. So, happy birthday, Midtown Baptist, and praise be to God. Okay, Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 15, the account of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And I'll ask that you follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church beginning in verse 1 of Luke chapter 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And He ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended... I'm sorry, I lost my place. He ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, He was hungry. The devil said to Him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about Him went went out through all the surrounding country, and He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now to our faithful God as we seek His grace uh, this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do ask now that You would help us to hear Your Word with ears of faith, and that You would help us, God, to hold fast to the truth, and that You would use even Your Word here in Luke chapter 4 this morning to remind us that You are a faithful God, 
And You've given us a faithful Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. Please give us grace, Father. Please keep me close to the truth. Please grant Your people discernment and insight even as they listen now to to Your Word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a senior in high school, our world history teacher assigned us an essay where we had to answer the question, what was the most significant day of the 20th century? I, I graduated high school in 1999, so there was a lot of end of the century stuff going on at that time. So she asked us the question, what was the most significant day of the last 100 years? I said something about some battle in World War II because that's the kind of stuff that I'm into a lot of other kids said different things. One guy said his own birthday, which is not surprising for a bunch of 17-year-olds. But the point of the assignment was not actually to get one single answer. You can't really answer that kind of question with absolute certainty. Rather, the point of the assignment was to illustrate to our young minds that history does often turn on what we might call hinge moments. A single day, a single decision is often the difference between the world that we know and the world we might have inhabited. History, in other words, turns on those hinge moments. And friends, our passage this morning in Luke chapter 4 is one of those hinge moments. Except here, the focus is not American history or military history or even world history. Here in Luke 4, the focus is redemptive history. Or we might say the history of God's work in the world. You see, it's not an overstatement to describe these verses as the most pivotal event for humanity since the Garden of Eden. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 15, is the most pivotal event for humanity since the Garden of Eden. Will humanity continue on the course that Adam set in the Garden, a course of sin and suffering and death? Or will divine grace intervene to change the course of human history? through the faithfulness of someone greater than Adam? Those are the questions that are at stake in Luke chapter 4. And you can see the pivotal nature of this moment right there for yourself in the Bible. I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to see it in the Scriptures. You don't have to look very hard, actually. Luke lays it out for us very clearly. Notice again how chapter 3 ended. Look there in your Bibles. How chapter 3 ended with a reference to Adam, who is called God's son because Adam was created directly by God in the garden. But Adam, you know, was an unfaithful son. Adam listened to the serpent's lies. He fell into sin. And in doing so, Adam plunged the entire human race into sin as well. So all of that tragic history comes flooding into view at the end of Luke chapter 3. But then notice what happens in chapter 4. Jesus, who has also been declared the Son of God, Jesus is led out into the wilderness where He is tempted by whom? By that ancient serpent from the garden, even the devil himself. So do you see how Luke is laying out these two sons in parallel track? Adam, God's son, tempted by the serpent and fell, but now Jesus, God's unique and beloved son, also tempted by the devil? And that means the question almost leaps off the page at you. Will this son stand or will he fall? Will Eden be repeated or will there be a new beginning for humanity? Will Jesus be faithful or will Adam's failure continue to define us? Those are the questions, friends. And that means Luke 4 is one of those hinge moments. Perhaps the most 
pivotal moment for the human race since the Garden of Eden, right here in the wilderness, Luke chapter 4. Now, of course, we just read the passage, so you already know how those questions are answered. Jesus is better than Adam, praise God. Jesus is better than Adam. But that basic answer, friends, is not nearly enough to grasp the grace and the truth of this passage. There's so much more here for us to see. So even though you and I both know the big picture, let's pay attention to Jesus' ordeal in the wilderness. Let's work through Jesus' trial in the wilderness, paying attention to each part. And as we do, I'd like you to note very simply with me just two truths. The first has to do with God's providence, and the second, not surprisingly, has to do with God's Son. God's providence and God's Son. And we'll start in verses 1 and 2 where we see that God's providence is always purposeful. God's providence is always purposeful. You'll remember from last week, Luke chapter 3, that as Jesus was baptized, the heavens were torn apart, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove. And the point was to identify Jesus as the Spirit-anointed Messiah, the long-promised Savior of the people of God. Well, as chapter 4 begins, you'll notice that the focus on the Holy Spirit continues. Look at verse 1, where it says it very clearly. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So twice in a single verse, we hear of the Spirit's role in Jesus' life. And that role is straightforward. The Spirit leads Jesus. The Spirit guides Jesus into the wilderness. This is really significant, friends, and here's why. It shows us that Jesus has done nothing wrong at this point. He hasn't done anything wrong. I don't know about you, but I often encounter temptation because I get too close to something that's tempting. Right? It's, it's my fault. I wander too close to that line. To be tempted is not a sin, but sometimes I just get too close to the things that are tempting, and that even reveals something evil in my heart that I like to play, I like to play around with, with things that are, that are dangerous. That's not the case with Jesus. He didn't go into the wilderness because something inside of Him led Him out there. He didn't go into the wilderness because there was something evil in His own heart. He isn't trying to see how close He can get to the line without crossing it. Instead, this entire episode is an outworking of God's providence. It is God the Holy Spirit who leads Jesus into the wilderness. Which means that Jesus is above reproach from the very beginning. But we should also note that the Spirit's providential leading reveals another significant point, and that point's there in verse 2. Look at what it says. Jesus is in the wilderness. Verse 2 tells us for 40 days being tempted by the devil. So Luke makes clear that the devil is the source of Jesus' temptations. The devil is the source of these trials. Again, this is key, friends. God does not tempt Jesus, for God tempts no one. God does not tempt Jesus. And Jesus is not tempted by something wicked in His own heart. Jesus is sinless, even down to His very thoughts and desires, which I would try to illustrate that to you, but I don't know what that's like. He's sinless, even down to His thoughts and desires. Down to the core of His being, Jesus loves His Father. And that means these temptations come entirely from outside of Him. They're external to Him. They're not internal. Jesus doesn't seek these things out. They don't come from within His own heart. It's the devil, who is a real person, 
It's the devil who assaults Jesus. But here's where you got to connect verse 1 and verse 2. Remember how the situation began with the Holy Spirit leading Jesus. And so that means, now listen to me, that means that the devil's tempting of Jesus happens in accord with the providence of God. Do you see the progression? It's really key. The Spirit's leading precedes the devil's scheming. Right? The Spirit's leading comes first. Or to say it another way, the devil may be the source of these temptations, but it's God's providence that controls this situation. Not the devil. The devil, as wicked and sinister as he is, is ultimately not in charge. I've heard one pastor say often, God has the devil on a leash. And he only goes as far as God allows him to go. The devil's not in charge. His schemes, which are utterly evil, finally serve the purposes of God in the end. And that should change our perspective on everything else that happens in this passage. Think about this. Jesus is going to suffer during these 40 days. He's, under, he's going to undergo trials and tribulations more intense than anything that any believer has ever faced. And there will surely be moments when it seems like the devil has the upper hand. And yet, even in those moments, the reality of the Spirit's leading is like a light in the darkness. The reality of God's providence is like an anchor for Jesus in the storm. God is working, and He's working even in the wilderness. And His purpose is not threatened by the devil's schemes. Isn't that good news, friends? Isn't that good news? None of us will ever face a season of temptation as intense as what Jesus faces here. But all of us can relate to seasons of life where it seems like the trials will never let up. Ever have weeks like that? Each of us can relate to feeling attacked on every side. Perhaps you've even had a season in your life where you are seeking wholeheartedly to do the will of God and and temptation is around every corner. You know what that's like? I know what that's like. And and listen, in those moments, it can be very easy to assume that God is absent. That He's forgotten you. That His purpose has been derailed. But friends, Jesus' experience in the wilderness reminds us of what holds true for all of God's people in every situation of life. God's providence is never thwarted. His purposes are never derailed. But here's the important piece that you have to get or you miss this Truth, that is as true in the wilderness as it is on the mountaintop. God's purpose is never derailed. And that is as true in the wilderness, undergoing the temptations and the trials, as it is on the mountaintop when you enjoy the presence of God almost in face-to-face communion with Him. It's the same truth and it doesn't change. This is one of those things that I've had to learn and I've had to go back to time and time again. The truth that God doesn't waste anything. He doesn't waste anything. He doesn't even waste the wilderness. He's always working. He's always advancing His purpose. He's always doing a thousand things at the same time and we're barely aware of just a handful of them. And listen, friends. Listen to me. Sometimes it takes a wilderness... Sometimes it takes a wilderness for God's purpose to be accomplished. Remember, faith is like a precious jewel. It is both created and revealed through fire, through heat, through trial. 
And that means there are some aspects of grace that can only be given to you in the wilderness. There are some aspects of grace that can only be revealed through testing and through trial. And that means sometimes God will lead you into the wilderness because in His wisdom, He knows that the heat of the moment is necessary to give our faith the tested beauty that brings even more glory to His name. His purpose is never thwarted, and that's as true in the wilderness as it is on the mountaintop. Friends, I don't know about you, but that's some solid ground for our faith. Wouldn't you agree? That's a place where you can put your feet and stand for a little while. Jesus' experience is this sweet reminder of God's providence over all things and in all seasons. What proves true for Jesus is true for all of those who belong to Jesus. And that truth is that God is never absent. His plan is never thwarted. He never wastes anything. And even in the wilderness, even in the testing, even in the trials, His providence is always purposeful. And therefore, we can trust Him. Now, even as we rejoice in that truth, and I do hope you rejoice in that, we should also acknowledge that what Jesus, what Jesus faces in the wilderness is seriously intense. God's providence is certainly purposeful, but that doesn't make every situation easy. And that's what we see here with the Lord Jesus. Beginning in verse 3, Jesus faces off with the devil in a battle of spiritual warfare that has cosmic significance. This is the heart of the passage Friends, and the truth that we see here is that God's Son is forever faithful. God's providence is always purposeful, and God's Son is forever faithful. Now, this section of the text follows a basic pattern. It's not hard to follow. It's not hard for you to see. Three times the devil tempts Jesus, and three times the Lord Jesus resists until finally the devil leaves, verse 13 says, until a more opportune time should arise. I don't know that there's a more ominous verse in the Bible than that one. A more opportune time. Three times the devil tempts Jesus with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, as we remembered earlier. Three times he tempts Jesus, and three times Jesus resists. That's the basic pattern. But let, let's look a little deeper at each temptation. And what I want to do is pay attention to both the devil's devices, what he uses, and Jesus' faithfulness. The first temptation comes in verse 3, where the devil questions God's Word. Notice the suggestive tone of verse 3. If you are the Son of God, the devil says, command this stone to become bread. Now, the temptation of bread is sinister, isn't it? Remember, Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. And as Luke says in an instance of massive understatement, He was hungry. Right? He's hungry. And so the temptation of bread hits Jesus where He is weak. He's hungry. But as sinister as that is, notice how it all begins with a question. Did you see that? Verse 3, If you are the Son of God, the devil says. Now, what did God say just one passage earlier? Luke chapter 3. God declared that Jesus was His beloved Son. The One in whom God was well pleased. But what does the devil do here in chapter 4? He questions that truth. He questions God's Word. Friends, this should sound familiar to you. What did the serpent say to Eve in the garden? The serpent asked her, did God really say? You see, the device that the devil employs here 
with Jesus is the same He used back in the garden. The devil's starting point, it seems, is always to question what God has said. His starting point is always to question what God has said. In fact, you can rest assured, friends, that an attitude of skepticism toward the Bible nearly always ends in unfaithfulness. An attitude of skepticism toward the Bible is not high-minded intelligence. It's the road to destruction. One of the devil's consistent devices is to cast doubt on God's Word. But notice, friends, the wisdom of Jesus Christ. He responds with the very truth that the devil questions. Jesus responds with God's Word. Verse 4, Jesus says, "...it is written, man shall not live by bread alone." Now this is actually how Jesus responds every time. With every temptation, Jesus cites Scripture. And specifically, He cites the book of Deuteronomy every time, which is really the heart of the Old Testament. Everything before Deuteronomy was flowing into it. Everything after Deuteronomy is flowing out of it. It's the heart of the Old Testament. It's where the most important commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is found. So Jesus cites not just the Bible, but the very heart of what it means to follow God according to the Old Testament. Jesus cites Deuteronomy every time. Now, I think this is fascinating. Every time, all three times, Jesus cites the Bible. We typically think of resisting temptation as requiring some elaborate plan and strategy with lots of different elements that come together at just the right time to provide the perfect defense. But Jesus would say otherwise. Jesus' strategy is quite different. Every time, Jesus simply responds with the truth of God's Word. And in this instance, friends, that truth that He cites is a perfect defense. Man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus cites the truth that God's people need to remember in every age. The truth that Scripture is actually more necessary than bread. The truth that God's Word is the most vital thing for life in this world. You see, the devil wants Jesus to think about himself first and foremost. The devil wants Jesus to focus on his needs and his desires and what he wishes that he had that he doesn't have. But Jesus is too wise for that scheme. Jesus knows that focusing on self is never the pathway to faithfulness. Rather, God's Word calls us to entrust ourselves to God and to believe that His Word will give us all that we need for life and godliness. And that's how Jesus stands firm here. He looks to the provision that God has given to Him in His Word. You're not going to live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus stands firm on the Scriptures. And so... Brothers and sisters, before we move on, I have to ask you do, you, do you see the example that Jesus is setting here when it comes to fighting temptation? The only effective weapon against temptation is the Word of God. I know that's an absolute statement, but it's true. The only effective weapon in fighting temptation is the Word of God. So do you know the Word of God like that, friends? Are you taking in the Scriptures regularly, reading, believing, and applying what God says? Listen, you can't hold on to what you don't know. And you can't fight with a weapon you don't know how to use. Are you taking in God's Word? If you're not connected to the Scriptures, then your fight against sin and temptation will always be a losing battle. And I don't, and I don't say that from the chair of success high above the battlefield. I say that as a, as a person who's learned it by experience. <laughs> if you're not connected to God's Word, it's always going to be a losing battle. So are you growing in the Scriptures? Are you taking in God's Word? Why not make today 
the day that you decide to put the phone down for 15 minutes in the morning or 15 minutes at night and take up God's Word and read. It's really easy to say, I just don't have, t- I don't have the time to, to fit that in. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. You do have time. You can find it. Are you taking in God's Word? If the Son of God used the Scriptures to fight temptation, then how much more should you and I? And how much more should you and I? Still, that's only temptation number one. The devil is not that easily deterred, which is itself a lesson, friends, that the devil is not easily deterred. That's just the first temptation. The devil strikes again, this time with a temptation that distorts God's will. He questioned God's Word first. Now he distorts God's will. Look at verse 5, where where the devil offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world with, with one condition. One condition. Jesus must worship the evil one. Now that's quite the temptation, isn't it? Global power and glory for the seemingly small price of worship. It's quite the temptation. Now, does the devil actually have the ability to give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world? No, not actually. He doesn't. You see, true to his nature, the devil is telling a half-truth here. He's telling a half-truth. It's true that Satan is called the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2, and Jesus Himself calls Satan the ruler of this world in John 12, but even still, the devil does not own this world or any part of it. He can claim to offer this kind of glory to Jesus, but it's not a claim that He can deliver. It's not a claim He can deliver. However, the heart of the temptation is not about the kingdoms of this world. The heart of this temptation, the devil's real objective, is to distract Jesus from the cross. That's the devil's real objective, to distract distract Jesus from the cross. Remember, Jesus already knows that God's will for Him is to go to the cross and suffer for the salvation of His people. But Jesus also knows that suffering will not be the end of the story. By suffering on the cross, Jesus will receive what? The glory of all the kingdoms of the world as His inheritance. Every knee will bow, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, because Jesus became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. But friends, that's precisely what the devil tempts Jesus to avoid. The devil opposes God's will by offering Jesus a supposedly easier path to glory. A supposedly easier path to glory. Why go through all of that suffering? The devil whispers, why do the hard work of obeying the Father? The devil asks, why not just worship me and get the glory now without having to do all the suffering to come? You see the temptation? You see the subtlety of it? Again, this is one of the devil's consistent devices. The devil knows that faithfulness is hard. He knows that there is a cost to discipleship. Following Jesus is not easy. The devil knows that there's a cost. And so he will regularly whisper to us that there is an easier way if we will just give in. There's an easier way. The devil will point to the cost of discipleship and he'll say to you, do you really want to go through that? Why not God and Him only shall you serve? So here we see the humility of Christ. He submits Himself to God the Father even though that means Jesus must endure the cross. But that's the point, friends. Jesus fights the devil's half-truth with God's whole truth. When the devil whispers lies, 
Jesus looks to the Father and He believes that God's will for Him is best. Is that true of us, friends? Do we believe that God's will is best even when it's costly? Do we believe that faithfulness to God's Word is worth the hardship that it will bring? Listen, I firmly believe that this is a question the church in our day must come to grips with. Our culture is changing so rapidly that faithfulness to God and to His Word is quickly becoming costly in a tangible sense. Not a theoretical sense. A tangible sense. The days in which even the ideas of Christianity being the dominant cultural force in our country, those days are gone and they're buried in the ground and they're probably not coming back. And so it's becoming very costly to be faithful to God and to His Word. Just a few weeks ago, I was reading an article about a group of Christian doctors who are having to wrestle with the fact that if they stand on God's convictions, it will require them to say no to certain kinds of medical practices. And that may cost them their jobs. Are we ready to endure that kind of cost? Because the devil's going to come right behind that and say, you know there's an easier way. You can still get all the glory, but there's an easier way. So are we ready? Do we think that it's worth it to stand on God's Word? Do we believe that such faithfulness is worth it? I pray that we do. And for some encouragement, let me just remind you how this played out in Jesus' life. Was it costly for Him to do the Father's will? Yes. Was it difficult for Him to stand firm on God's Word? Yes. But was it worth it? Absolutely. For the joy that was set before Him, the book of Hebrews tells us, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated now where? At the right hand of God, where He's received all glory and power and praise that's due to His name. That's part of what Jesus is teaching you and me at this point, friends. He's showing us with His own life that faithfulness to God, even when it is costly, is always worth it. It's always worth it. He's showing us that standing on God's Word always leads to a life of joy and grace and peace. Now, that return might be down the road, and you might not get the full enjoyment of it until heaven, but even so, the return is coming. And that future promise should be enough to sustain us in our present faith. Let's look back to the passage where the devil has one more temptation for Jesus. Questions God's Word, distorts God's will, and in verse 9, the devil doubts God's goodness. You can see it there in verse 9. He takes Jesus to the summit of the temple and he says, why don't you just throw yourself off of this and see if God will save you? Now, I, I, this is the temptation that's always befuddled me. What, what is the devil getting at? Why is he doing this? Why tempt Jesus in this way? Well, remember the context. Jesus has been in the wilderness for 40 days. He's hungry, and he's about to embark on a ministry that will lead him to the cross. All of that is hard, in other words. All of that is hard. And knowing the circumstances, the devil begins to suggest, you know, if the Father really loved you, he wouldn't make you do all of this. Maybe he's not actually good to you. So why don't you throw yourself down and make him prove it, that he's good? You can feel the pull of that. He's questioning the Father's character, but the devil's not finished. 
verses 10 and 11, he goes further and he twists God's Word to his advantage. The devil knows a little bit of the Bible too. He cites Psalm 91. You see it there in verse 10. Psalm 91 says that God will promise to protect His people. And so the devil cites that passage and and he says to Jesus, "Doesn't, doesn't the Scripture promise that God will do good to you? If God promised to protect you, then why not make Him prove it? (laughs) Why not make God prove it? You see, the devil is taunting Jesus. This isn't about about angels or Jesus' power or whether or not Jesus could die before the cross. This isn't about anything like that. This is about the Father's character. This is about the character of God. The devil suggests that God is a liar and that His goodness cannot be trusted. But once again, notice the faithfulness of God's Son. Jesus goes back to the Scriptures. Verse 12, And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Friends, we should marvel here at the wisdom of the Son of God. For Jesus, God's Word is enough. He doesn't need the Father to prove anything to Him. Jesus has God's Word. That Word says that God is good. That God never changes. And therefore, God's Word is enough. For Jesus, it's enough. He doesn't need anything else. And so I'll come back to that question that we asked just a moment ago. Do our lives demonstrate our belief that Scripture is enough for life and godliness? Do our lives demonstrate that the Bible is enough? It's interesting, really. When it comes to the Bible, most people think that the key question is whether or not we believe it's true. But friends, I would say that the key question is whether or not we believe the Bible is enough. That's really the challenge for the church in our day. It's not so much the question of, is the Bible true? It's the question of, is the Bible enough? By all means, let's affirm that the Bible is true. By all means, let's let's affirm that the Bible is authoritative. But then let's also demonstrate with our lives that the Bible is sufficient. That the Bible is enough for us to live. And do you know how we do that, brothers and sisters? Do you know how we do that? By building our lives on the Scriptures. By reading and believing and obeying what God says. And so if you want to grow, friends, then you have to seek to know God's Word. Again, it's it's there in the passage. If the Son of God stood on the Word of God in faithfulness, then how much more should we? How much more should we? But even as we consider the importance of Scripture, and it is important, even as we consider that importance, did you know that that is not the most important application of this passage? Luke chapter 4 is not solely about how we can fight temptation. This passage is ultimately about how Jesus remained faithful under temptation. That's the primary point, that Jesus remained faithful under temptation. And that means, now listen to me, that means the most important application of Luke chapter 4 is for us to stop and rejoice that there is a Son of God who remained faithful to the Father. That's the most important application. We should stop and rejoice that our salvation rests on Jesus' obedience to God. 
The first Adam fell in the garden, plunging all of us into sin. But the second Adam, the Lord Jesus, stands firm in temptation. And because of His faithfulness, salvation has come to the people of God. You see, this is actually very helpful for understanding the full beauty of salvation. Typically, when we think about salvation, we think about it only from one side. The side of Jesus taking our punishment upon Himself at the cross. And praise God, that's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. Jesus did die to bear the sins of His people on the cross. But here's where we need to see the bigger picture. There is another side to salvation that is just as necessary. The side of Jesus keeping God's law. The side of Jesus obeying God's Word in our place. In order for sinners like us to be saved, we need a Savior who does two things. Bears the punishment of God and obeys the Word of God. Both of them in our place. And that's what we see here in Luke chapter 4, brothers and sisters. As we witness Jesus remain faithful in temptation, we should be overwhelmed with joy that God has provided a Savior who did for us what we could not and would not do. You could put each of us in the wilderness for a thousand years and we would never stand firm. And that means we would go to hell with no hope of ever being saved before God. We should be overwhelmed with joy that God has given a Savior who who did what we could not and would not do for ourselves. We are saved by Jesus' death and by His life. We need both of them. We are saved because Jesus bore the wrath of God and because He obeyed the Word of God. Brothers and sisters, that's the message of Luke chapter 4. That's the point of this Seen, Jesus stood firm under temptation because we so often do not. Jesus held fast to God's Word because we so often do not. And Jesus remained faithful to the Father so that unfaithful people like us might become the sons and daughters of God. Your eternal destiny was sealed if you know Christ here in the wilderness. That's what the temptation of Jesus is about. It's not solely about how we can fight sin It's about the fact that we so often don't fight sin and need a Savior who can rescue us by doing what we could not and would not do. This this pivotal moment in redemptive history, friends, is ultimately and finally and astoundingly about the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, what better way for us to respond to God's Word this morning than by coming to the Lord's table? And by coming to the Lord's table together here in a few minutes to remember His work on our behalf. It's very fitting, friends. It is very fitting that we're going to gather around a table that we did not set to eat and drink from a meal that we did not make on our own. We take and we eat from the work of another. Someone who did a work in our half. And by doing that, we are declaring together that salvation is entirely by grace through faith. It was not you and I who bled and died. It was Jesus. And it was not you and I who stood firm and obeyed God to the end. It was Jesus. And that's what we remember as we take the bread and the cup together. It's not our work, but His. The supper reminds us that our salvation rests on the faithful obedience of the Son of God. And so, as we prepare to come and as we're going to sing here in just a moment, I pray that our hearts would be encouraged by the Son's work on our behalf and in remembering Christ's work, I pray that we would be strengthened for repentance, for faithfulness, and for godliness until the day that the Lord Jesus returns again. Amen? Let's pray.
Father, we thank You that You have given us Your Son. And we praise You that that Son was faithful and stood firm until the end. And we confess, God, that apart from His faithfulness, we would not know You and we would have no hope of salvation. But through Him, God, You have made a way for sinners, unfaithful sinners like us, to be saved and to be redeemed. Give us grace now to look to Christ, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.